And you're listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, also 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. Stay tuned for Cover to Cover Open Book. Welcome to this edition of Cover to Cover, Open Book, or as I call it, Frame to Frame. My name is Raina Cowan, here to talk about film for the next half hour. I thank you for joining me. You know, there are many Bay Area filmmakers that have done such interesting work, and one that I've been so excited to interview over the years is Emiko Amori. Uh, she first began as a cinematographer in 1968, and I have seen her work on many different films. And then I've interviewed her Many times at KPFA, uh, she did a documentary memoir, Rabbit in the Moon, about her family's confinement in uh, World War II American camp. Um, and then also Passion and Power, the Technology of Orgasm where um, that that was that was quite a wild film and so and she is here again with a very interesting film it's entitled to chris marker an unsent letter um so welcome to kpfa thank you <clears throat> uh, so i want to start by introducing our audience to chris marker not everybody knows who he is i would say probably the simplest explanation is he's somebody who was very much involved in the film world he died recently um he was a french writer photographer documentary filmmaker he did films that are well recognized la jete um a grin without a cat sans soleil and many others but i don't think that really does justice to who he is how would you describe him uh, well he is quite indescribable um i think one of the reasons uh, i made this film and and uh, one of the reasons I make all my films is to sort of try to answer those kinds of questions. And um, this one was particularly difficult because he is um, so unique. And I think people say it's like essay film, meaning it's um, not your typical documentary of, say, interviews and um, images. Uh, he's um and of course he is famously reclusive and he does not grant interviews nor does he allow himself to be photographed so taking on trying to do something about chris marker was uh, a challenge uh but uh he and i became acquainted oh back in 1974 and i am s so I'm such an admirer of his work that um, I really wanted to somehow express that to him. Um, and so I made this documentary or using his inspiration and that's trying to use some of the techniques that he uses. I mean, I even hate to call them techniques. Um, and s since I couldn't interview him... Um, I decided to do a portrait based on people's recollections of him, people who know him, and also people who just know him through his films. And um, I wanted to build a kind of portrait uh, from varying perspectives, or like what I call the Rashmon effect. 
and to have uh, an image of him. An image, I don't really mean perhaps a visual image, uh, build in the mind of the viewer. Well, it's so interesting because nowadays, so many documentaries, you, they have to be character driven. And so what you're talking about is doing something in a different style than that. And <laughs> there's sort of like, uh, in some ways, it's funny, an absent character driven because it's about him, but uh, he's not actually ever shown in the film, but um, that there's some element of how he's captured, both by your associations to who he is and the poetry that that evokes and everybody who you interview. Maybe this is a good time to hear a, a bit from the film um, so we can see kind of the rhythm of how it starts. In the mid-60s, my love affair with cinema begins with two small films, both made of still photos. One, simply titled Ache, a meditation on the photos of French photographer Eugene Ache, accompanied by piano pieces composed by Eric Satie. The combination, like swirls of cream in iced coffee, creates a sensuous reverie of a Paris between wars. other, you guessed it, La Jetée, a meditation on a Paris after the war, World War III that is, also composed of still images, with one electrifying exception. When the woman, asleep in stillness, opens her eyes, to my astonishment, that small ordinary gesture opens a world of possibilities. First Sans Soleil, or Sunless, which was a modest art house hit its first time around, but which may now seem bewilderingly personal or arbitrary. It is a kind of letter, a vast, side-filled email, composed before emails were known, in which a wo woman's voice, that of the Franco-American actress Alexandra Stewart, keeps talking about some things some man has told her. I stress that because it is an odd, fence-like device, a way of keeping the film not just at a distance, but half a step round the corner. First he told her about three children, seen on a road in Iceland. And there they are, blondes, brighter still in the sun, in fields that still seem incompletely thawed. Just an image of happiness or of movies' reckless talent for creating a golden past. So there we have that's David Thompson. Yes. Uh, Bay Area David Thompson uh, talking from his book about Chris Marker and um, Le Jeté and other things. It's, it's from an article in The Guardian, the uh -huh. uh, English newspaper uh, that he and it's you know I started this movie in 2002 and I only just finished it so um, this article that David wrote is from way back then and um, I chose 
other people to speak about him because they were so articulate and and David is one of the most articulate and uh, he's a beautiful writer and um, he gives a pretty good description of of Sans Soleil just uh, when you ask me to describe Chris Marker's films like well thank goodness David Thompson can do it. <laughs> well, I don't know. It's actually very interesting because I was noting uh, that you you have an amazingly strong choice of language. You know that you were a cinematographer first before you became a director, and there's some way where I don't know. Maybe it's because of your eye. You notice things that other people aren't noticing, and you pay attention to the rhythm. So that there's a lot of elements of you in this film and maybe that's the other way I would describe Chris Marker that even though I never met him there was some part of him that I would get to know by hearing his ramblings of his experience and then his little stories and then the different images that he is juxtapositioning together with that and there's some way where so in this film it's kind of a layering effect because I'm getting to know you Emiko Amori in a different way I'm getting to know him Chris Marker in a different way and then uh, I'm also dealing with my own memory of both my experience of watching his films and then my reflection on him so it, it creates a a really very rich environment that you've been been able to to do with this film uh, and it makes me think that you started this film in 2002 you said so it's like a 10-year journey uh, how did you envision it 10 years ago versus how it is now because i can imagine that you've you've learned things you've experienced many different ways of being you've worked on so many different kinds of films in that time period uh so in, on some level, since I think Chris Marker really is so interested in time, for example, that time was actually, <laughs> you had to use time in a different way by working on something for so long. Um, I think the the germ of the idea of trying to create a portrait just, you know, by various people talking about him, that was uh, the original idea. Um, I had not really used a lot of his clips because, you know, I finished a cut like 2003 or four, uh, and then, I, I don't know, uh, it went on the shelf. Um, and when I decided to finish it, which was uh, late last year, I brought it back down off the shelf. Several things had taken place. Well, for one thing, there was this big gap of time and uh, when I decided to uh, ask him permission to do this um, I had gotten my first small digital video camera which freed me up to just start collecting images because uh, I think this is one of the ways he works is he goes places and he collects images and stories and then they come back and they become an art piece or a museum installation or a movie or an article. Um, and so I, I started to collect images. Actually, in 2002, I went to Paris to ask his permission. And we met in this little cafe. And um, I had broached the subject somewhat earlier via some correspondence because I found some old correspondence. And he said something like, oh, you know, I 
think you said something about doing a project on me. You know, I I probably just forgot that, and you know the reason why. But so I said, well, I'm just going to go over and ask him. So I asked him while we were having a cup of tea, and he didn't. Well, he sort of gruffly said, well, you know, I won't be in it. And um, I thought, well, he didn't say no. And then he gave me a photograph of himself with his companion, Guillaume Anajit, his cat. Well, I thought, well, I think that's a yes. (laughs) And so I embarked. And um, it was a wonderful sort of few weeks of taking my camera I went to some places that are in his films for instance the Natural History Museum that's a, a big part of um, La Jete I um, was I took some train trips I went to Spain and, and various places and I just took images wherever I went it was so freeing to have my own um, camera uh, with inexpensive digital tapes and you know, not worry about costs and things. In Saint-Soleil, he talks about pursuing the uh, ordinary, the mundane, I, that we, um, we expect, you know, we don't, we don't want to take a picture of a sunrise unless it's golden and beautiful. So, in Saint-Soleil, he says, so he um, you know, sought out the, I can't remember what he uses the term, I don't know if it was ordinary or what, like a bounty hunter. And it's sort of ordinary glimpses of just ordinary life. And I took that to heart. Um, and so I, um, but that is, of course, there should be something interesting going on, even though it's it's an ordinary moment. Um, so over the next how many years is that till now? You know, approximately eight or ten years. Um, I, I took my camera on a lot of trips. Also, by the time I went to see him, he had really stopped traveling. He was um, in his 80s then. And uh, so I wanted to sort of show him places I had been. And there's a sequence in the movie of being in a bar in Tokyo, which he told me about, called Jete. And it's, uh, of course, named for his movie. So um, I thought, well, I'm just going to show him. Here's the bar. It's still here. And here's the owner who said hello to him. And then I went to the cat cemetery, which wasn't easy to find. Um, And I just was really wanting to show him now what these places look like. Because he had been there maybe ten years before that. So... Part of the imagery is just simply to share these places with him. Um, he also has these totem animals. Uh, of course, the cat, the owl, and uh, elephant. And um, so I would look for those totem animals to be able to share with him. I also wanted to share, his, to me, his sort of... What I would call his soft side. He has a funny sense of humor. When you meet him, he's a little formidable. You know, he's and if after all, it's Chris Marker. You know, and you're. It was always, um, um, you know, n- nerve 
nervous. Uh, I, I would uh, even to have a cup of tea with him. You know, how, what, what what would we talk about? Well, he he'd love to talk just about things like cats, and you know, it didn't have to be politics and world uh, situations. Uh, even though, of course, so much of that is in his films. Um, so. That was one of the things I wanted to show. I knew that he had this very humorous side. Um, and I shared a little bit of correspondence that we had It's in the movie. Um, and one is about his uh, time in what he did in the military during World War II. Because there's always been some, like, was he a parachutist or something there were all these sort of stories about what he did so um he wrote me uh the infantry division or whatever he he was in now uh he was part of the u.s army i don't know how that happened um and so it was started to clarify a few things but then you realize that i don't think the word trust is correct but you can't always rely on what he says or writes to you as being absolute truth. Um, and I, I very much admire that of him. I admire the fact that he can go on... I, I, I come from the documentary uh, school and that everything should be sort of truthful. And I don't mean he, he's not lying. He's simply... Uh, is using metaphor or analogy or something, you know, in a very playful way. So I have to take everything he says with a little grain of salt. Um, even in his CD-ROM called In Memory, which is really interesting, you know, and he talks about his childhood. Uh, he had gone to Cuba to follow an uncle there and going... Really? I mean, I don't know, but but it doesn't matter in a way uh, to me. He's telling a very interesting story. Um, so, and then there are images there. I don't know if they're actually his aunts and uncles or, you know. So, what is that playfulness? I, I love that, and, and I wish I could be more like that in my own films. Well, it's a funny thing. We're talking uh, to Emiko Amori. Her film, To Chris Marker, An Unsent Letter, is showing this evening at Pacific Film Archive in Berkeley at 7 p.m. It's a, a series entitled The Marker Mix, where they're showing some of his films as well as um, Emiko's film, which I think is a remarkable film. But you're raising a really interesting question, because on one level... Uh, we have this idea that if we see something visually, it's true. I mean, that's sort of how cinematography, the world of film got started. It's like, but really there's such a confusion between reality and fantasy. And he doesn't let himself be shown on one level. So who he is, uh, is it really just the stories that he tells? And I guess that's what you're wrestling with um, in some way. And and everybody tells stories in your film about him, of which sound true, but who knows what they are. Yes, um, he was um, he was. Uh, I mean, I don't I don't know what his motives were for being uh, sort of so 
unavailable. Um, but um, I fi- finally, so here was something I kind of left, which was in the intervening years, I decided that I was going to use clips uh, of his films, more clips than I had. And part of my reluctance was, of course, rights issues and, and that sort of thing. But fair use is pretty uh, a, 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 a wonderful thing for us document- documentary filmmakers. And so I became sort of more bold about it. I said, well, no, I, I am going to use clips from his films. And when clips came into the the movie... It became him. That's him in the movie. That's his voice. And um, I felt it was a much more rounded film once we started. Because that's what I think he believes about himself. That it's his films. Yes. Do you want to know about him? There he is. Let's see. What did he write to me? He said here, um, um, oh, this was one of those faxes that we we we, we you know, um, wrote back and forth. It says, uh, seems we're not so lucky with technicals. Your fax is still better better than a decidedly uncooperative email, yet your page is plagued with a long white strip on the left, which makes at times your reading as tricky as the Rosetta Stone. Yet I understood you had a project on me. Perhaps you mentioned it already, and my unconscious simply erased it for obvious reasons. If you knew how much I'd prefer to be forgotten now. The films are there. I did my share. The rest is silence. Hmm. So it's hard to follow that. <laughs> Powerful. Yes. At the same time, I'm wondering if, he, if there was something very, uh, at the same time, playful in his work and what he was shooting and the stories he was telling, but there's something also very exact. And... Uh, there was a quality of uh, such exactitude that I wonder what it was like for you to um, like imagine how he would critique the film or whether you were Chris Marker-like enough or um, whether your aesthetics would somehow flow with his uh, I would think that that could create so much anxiety. It would be hard. <laughs> it would be hard to do what you did, but um, but I think you did a, a fab- fabulous job. So somehow something worked. But how did you think about those issues? Well, <clears throat> I I did send him a cut, but it was late in the game, and I think he was already ill. Uh, so I don't know that he ever saw it. Um, uh but yes it, it it it's it was very intimidating i mean he he's an intimidating person um and uh, he did say to me in one of our last communications you know um he says wait until i'm on that journey to paradise before releasing it um and it was very coincidental that just as I was finishing it, he died. So, I, of course, that was devastating. I mean, I, it still is very um, hard for me to imagine that he's gone. Um, and he, of course, he isn't, and he never will be. Um, but I had been sort of trying various ways of 
So that was a technical snafu. We're back on the air. Uh, my name is Raina Cowan. This is uh, Cover to Cover, Frame to Frame, Open Book. And we are here with Emiko Amori talking about her film that's going to be playing uh, at Pacific Film Archive uh, in Berkeley at the corner of Bowditch and Bancroft this evening at 7 o'clock. If you want more information about the film, the website is 510-642-1412, the screening tonight. So, um, Emiko, we just have a couple of minutes left, but uh, I'm I'm interested in... Uh, this idea of looking back at the film now that it's finished, it it seems like you were able to create a whole atmosphere that really um, is quite an homage to somebody that you found to be really great and wonderful. And I'm wondering what the experience was like now that you finished it, uh, how it changed you by working on this film. How it changed me. Um, I think it gave me more courage to try to break out of the structure of of uh, documentaries that the, the way I have been making them. Um, it did begin a little bit with Rabbit. He was very influential. By that, I just mean he he seemed to be the person I was always trying to make the movie for. You're talking about Rabbit in the Moon, your yes. earlier film. Yes. yes. And I, um, in fact, uh, there is a quote from Sans Soleil in that movie. Um, and uh, he, he's just been a great inspiration. And I hope that b- this film will um, introduce him to people that don't know him. Um, that was one of the other reasons, is I think his film should be more widely seen. Um and in particular, I would love to see, have young filmmakers see his films because they are, you know, not the usual form. And I would love to see documentary become, um, uh, widen its its stylistic ways, you know. Well, it's, it's it's such a very interesting film, and uh, it's it is playful. You said that you were you wish that you could be as playful as him. <laughs> um, I, I would think about the scene where there was somebody who made a spoof of um, one of oh, his yeah. films, <laughs> and then that because and at first I thought 
No. This, how could this be in this film and have some kind of relevance? But over time, you start realizing that <laughs> it's kind of like the mundane becomes sacred in a way. So I, I want to thank you so much. Once again, the film, An Unsent Letter to Chris Marker, this evening at 7 p.m. at Pacific Film Archive. I want to thank Emiko Amori for joining me today on Cover to Cover Open Book. My name is Raina Cowan. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Raina. Join us for a great holiday shopping experience at the KPFA Crafts Fair, Saturday and Sunday, December 8th and 9th from 10 to 6 at the Concourse at 8th and Brannon in San Francisco, where you can find the unique handcrafted artwork of 200 artisans and craftspeople, along with delicious food and live music each afternoon. It's KPFA's largest off-air fundraiser, $10 for adults, $8 for persons 65 and over, and persons with disabilities and free 